0: Turn with me in with your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. They ought to fall open there by now. <laughs> the other day, John Naylor came to me and handed me a little button that he'd gotten at some, at Soulfest or something like that, and it says, Who is Jesus? <laughs> I may have some of those buttons made up. <laughs> Praise God. Who is Jesus? That's what we're studying. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? They said to him, Some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And then then he asked the question, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven? We'll stop there this morning. That is the question that we're studying. That is the question of the ages. Who is Jesus? And we all know that if we gave you a quiz this morning, you would pass it with flying colors. But the question is, who is he really to you? Not who is he in your head, but who is he to you? What knowledge of him do you have? My wife and I this year were married 44 years I know her better. She is, the answer to that question is much deeper, more meaningful now than it was 45 years when I met her, met ago. 45 years ago, she was a pretty girl with a beautiful smile. That just, you know, there was something special about her. Now I know what's special about her, and I'm still discovering more every day. So who she is to me today is very different, but that's because I have a relationship with her. I've walked with her, and I've lived with her, and gone through things together for 44 years you have four children together and you have grandchildren and just life career changes and God working in your life you begin to learn about each other and the more you learn about each other the more you love each other and the deeper the relationship comes the Bible teaches us that more than anything else that was God wants with you the purpose of why he created you was to have a relationship with you God doesn't need anything I mean what's he need? he created everything with the words of his mouth But the one thing that love has to have, and that's what He is, is love. It has to have an object to love. Because love cannot hold itself in. It has to express itself. It has to give itself away. And God chose to give that love to you and to me. And we are in the process, once we come to Him, of learning about that love. And so that's what we're studying, who Jesus is. And we see that in the Scriptures that God already gives the answers because Jesus said to Peter, you didn't figure that out, but my Father in heaven revealed that to you. So this is the answer that God gives to the question of who Jesus is. And there's two parts to that. Christ, the Christ and the second part, the Son of the living God. And we're looking at that second part. What does it mean that God gave His only begotten Son us. We've looked in John chapter 3 verse 16, famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. The key word in there is so because otherwise it's just a statement that God loved us and gave his only begotten son. The word so tells us how much he loved us. That changes the whole meaning of that verse into a measure of the love that God has for us. We looked over in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. In fact, that whole section of Scripture talks about the grace of God, that we were all dead in our sins and transgressions. We were separated from God. There was no hope of ever connecting to God. In fact, if you read the Bible carefully, you'll find out none of us wanted to come to God. Unless He drew us, you don't come to Him. Because human nature and flesh wants to run away from Him, not get drawn closer to Him. But He'll draw us by His Spirit. So every one of us is here today because He drew you. John chapter 15, Jesus said to his disciples, so important that he wanted them to understand this at the very end. You didn't choose me, I chose you. You're here today because God chose you. And you didn't fool him. He knew what he was getting when he chose you. God chose you. You didn't choose him until he first chose you. He chose you, revealed Himself to you, and then you chose to receive Him. But the only way you even saw Him there was He chose you first. I mean, just meditate on that. God chose me. God chose me. Know everything about me, everything I'm ever going to do or don't do, everything I've ever thought or not thought. I mean, not just now, but even in the future. And He still chose me. You didn't fool Him. He knew just what He was getting, and He still chose you. Many of you wouldn't have chosen yourself. If we get really honest with ourselves, most of us wouldn't have chosen ourselves. But God chose you. And the reason He chose you, verse 4 of Ephesians 2 says, in order to satisfy, I love the Amplified, the great and wonderful and intense love with which God loves you. He saved you to satisfy His desire for you. And because in order to have you, it took the, the life of His only begotten Son, the Bible says it pleased Him to sacrifice His Son's life. Why? Because He knew that by doing so, He would have you. And that's what this is all about. All Everything else in the Bible, everything else we do or don't do, everything else, all is centered around that heart desire of God. He just wants you. He doesn't want your stuff. He wants you. If he has you, everything else follows. And, and so we've looked at the fact that God gave his son means that God gave his very best. He was willing to pay the utmost price to have you. That's a measure of his love for you. We talked about the fact that it's the revelation of that love that changes us. If you look at yourself right now in your walk with God, that's a measure of how much of His love for you you've received. It's interesting, I was thinking back, I heard somebody last year teach this and it really stuck with me. Interesting contrast in the Bible between the Apostle Peter and the Apostle John. The Apostle John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter was always talking about how much he loved Jesus. So Peter's confidence was in how much he loved Jesus. But when the test came, he denied Him. Because the confidence in how much you love Him won't get you through. John's confidence was in how much Jesus loved him. And at the foot of the cross the only disciple that was there was John. Because John's confidence was not in himself. It was in the love of that man on the cross had for him. So this is a vital subject. That's why we're spending this time on it. We've looked in Ephesians chapter 3 that says that in order to grow and be healthy, we have to be rooted and grounded in his love for us. Because whatever you're rooted and grounded in will determine the fruit that's produced through you. And if you're rooted and grounded in your love for Him, if you're rooted and grounded in your commitment to Him, then the fruit that you will produce is only as strong as your commitment to Him. But if you're rooted and grounded in His commitment to you, if you're rooted and grounded in His love for you, then that's what He will produce through you others to be what the Bible calls a sweet-smelling fragrance of Christ. And that's what we're about. So we've talked about scriptures, we've gone through and seen the scriptures that tell us uh, that God loves us and how much God loves us. But then we began to discover that just seeing what the Bible says about it doesn't mean we receive it. And we looked at, and the Lord is going over this with me again this morning. We've looked at this idea that everything that God has for us is a gift. I mean, think about that a second. Everything God has for you is a gift. You can't pay for it. What do you have? You can pay God. He doesn't take American Express, doesn't take Visa, doesn't take Mastercard. We do, but He doesn't. What do you have? That you can pay him for. Everything he has for you is a gift. And the very nature of a gift is there's two parts to it. There's the giver has to choose to give it. But then the person they give it to has to receive it. So for an order for a gift to transfer from the giver to the givee, from the donor to the donee, it has to be received by the by, the one to whom it's given. Now, you know, when it comes to natural things, we generally don't have problems with that. As I said, we had four kids. Christmas time, we never had trouble with them receiving gifts. Friday was my grand one of my granddaughter's eighth birthday, and uh, and we were there for her birthday party. She had no trouble receiving gifts. She opened them, you know, left and right, and that's the way it should be because they were freely given. And we got joy out of watching her unwrap the gifts that were given to her out of love. It blessed me to see the smile on her face so much that I'd taken pictures. I want to see this reaction when she opens the very thing that she wanted and she tears the cover off and, and she sees that and the reaction of her face is for, worth far more to me than what the present cost. I think about that. Think about that. Think about what God's love for you cost him. And all he's looking for is the response that you have when you receive the gift. But many of us have not fully received that gift because we're trying to store up enough to pay him for the gift that he's given to us. Well, God, I'm, I'm not worthy enough. I haven't been faithful enough. I haven't said the right things. I haven't done the right things. And so, therefore, God, I can't fully receive this gift yet because I'm not worthy of that gift. The very nature of a gift is you're not worthy of it. It has nothing to do with how worthy you are. Worthy means you've earned something or you've not earned it yet. A gift has nothing to do with you. It has to do with the desire in the heart of the giver of the gift. And so when we're trying to measure up and we're trying to be good enough and we're trying to do all those things and there's a place for being good, there's a place for doing that, but the rooting and the foundation of our life can't be in that. It has to be in His love for us. And what we're talking about is that love is a gift and because it's a gift, it has to be received. And because it has to be received, we've learned from James chapter 1, that everything that God gives has to be received by faith. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about we're learning, we're learning how to receive this gift of God's love. And this morning, with this congregation, there are people that have received this gift to a greater degree than others have received it. But none of us, none of us yet, have received this gift to the fullness. And you'll know when it's happening because it'll change you. And the more his love changes you, the less you're aware of you and the less you're aware you're changing. The more you're aware of yourself, the more that's a sign of how you need to know him better. Because the more you know him, the less you are aware of yourself. Because the Bible says we've been joined to him. So He doesn't see you separated from Him, but we see ourselves as separate from Him. That's why we're trying to clean ourselves up, fix ourselves up, strengthen ourselves, so that we can present a good gift to Him. (laughs) And as long as you're trying to do that, you're blocking Him from giving the fullness of His gift to you. So we're learning how to receive this gift and we've learned from James chapter 1 that everything that God gives must be received by faith with nothing doubting. And We've learned last week we talked about, all right, how do I increase this faith? Where does faith come from? We saw in, Hebrews cha- in uh, Romans chapter 10 verse 17 that faith comes by hearing. We saw, and we ended in Joshua chapter 1, and we saw that it's increased by meditating. And I gave you some scriptures to meditate on, and I gave you a little lesson on how to meditate. And now we're going to learn to the next step, go to the next step this morning of receiving. This, was to, this applies to anything that you receive from God, but we're talking specifically about the greatest gift that God has for us, and that's the gift of His love, receiving that gift of His love. So it's received by faith. We've looked in Romans chapter 4 and we saw that Paul, to teach this principle of faith, taught about Abraham's life. How Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations when he was incapable, he and his wife were incapable of having children for two reasons. First of all, they were too old. Secondly, she was barren. And God comes to him and makes a promise. And we saw through Romans 4, that, starting in verse 17, that as Abraham believed that promise, then God was able to bring that promise to pass in his life. Actually, we saw as he believed that promise, he was able to receive that promise that God had already promised. We looked at the fact that when God gives something, he, gives it, he just gives it. That faith is there to receive something, it's not there to make God give it. And we may go back over that again sometime because it's one of the things that people miss and it's so subtle is we think that faith is a requirement that if I'm not in faith then God's not giving it to me. And the Bible teaches clearly that see God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son but it's only whosoever should believe in Him that receive it. The the, faith is simply what allows you to receive something that's already been given. It was given before you were born. So it's not given on the condition that you believe. It's given, but it takes believing to receive what's already been given. And now today we're going to look at the next step, because there's another step besides believing. There's another step that's beside believing. In order to understand that, turn with me, to James chapter 2. James chapter 1 has a number of things in it, but one of the principles in James chapter 1 is that every gift that God gives is received by faith. Now in chapter 2, starting in verse 14, we see another principle, the other side of it. Verse 14, But what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? What he's going to begin to teach here is that faith alone doesn't work. Now Martin Luther, who was the great theologian who to whom God was revealed again, it was revealed earlier, but God revealed the the, the doctrine, the principle that we are saved by faith, not by our works. He believed this book shouldn't be in the Bible because he thought it was teaching we're saved by works. And that's not what James is teaching here. But he is teaching something about what we do. And this is very often the place where people miss it in faith. Now, what we're learning today, and really over the last few weeks, applies to receiving anything from God. In fact, James says that. You know, in order to receive anything from God, it must be received by faith. So whatever God's promised you, and whatever's in that book He's promised you, that you receive by faith remember the basics we looked at first of all you have to have a promise of God because faith is simply taking God at his word so you need to know what the word is it's taking a promise of God then it's not it's, it's, it's believing that promise that's an act of your will it's not an emotion it's an act of your will and then not paying any attention to anything that tells you another message and now there's a third part or another part, fourth part, depending on how you count it. Believing All is right. essential. Verse 14, you James can 2 act 14. On things you don't believe, what does it of my brethren, happen. if someone says God, he has faith? But so starts it starts with work. believing, starts with God's promise that I believe, but believing it's not enough. I grew up believing Jesus was the Son of God, I grew up believing he died for our sins. And if I had died before February, whatever date it was, in 1978, I would have split hell wide open, believing He's the Son of God. Because we just read the demons believe in God. And they're ahead of most Christians because they tremble. Most Christians believe in God, but they don't tremble at Him. (laughs) They don't tremble at His Word, the way Isaiah talks about 61. They can see Him, and they fear Him, and they tremble at His awesomeness. But the Bible says, hell's reserved for them. There are people in hell today that believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But they never acted on it by choosing to receive Him as their Savior and as their Lord and to make that confession of faith that is one of the ways you act on the Word. Now, let's go on and see what James says here. This is the place where most Christians stumble when it comes to operating in faith. I think the other place is we don't understand what faith is. We think faith is an emotion. And so I don't feel faith today, so I guess I'm not in faith. But the other area where people stumble is they don't know how to release it. They don't know how to exercise their faith. They think just having faith is all I need. That's why James is in here, one of the reasons James is in here. Verse 20, But do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead or ineffective or doesn't produce results? Now, he's not saying, he's not contradicting Paul's writings, because two-thirds of them, Two and a half books of the New Testament are based on the principle of the revelation that God gave to Paul that our salvation is based not on our works, not on how good you make yourself to be, but that our salvation is based on receiving Jesus Christ, the gift that God's given him to us, by faith. But James's point here is that if you have faith in Christ and have received him by faith, there's going to be some corresponding action that will release that salvation in your life. So, you know, don't throw away Romans and don't throw away Galatians and don't throw away Hebrews. They're in there for a reason. Verse 22, do you see that faith was working together With his works, talk about Abraham. Verse 21, let's go back there. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works and by works, faith was made perfect. That word actually means complete. What acting, what we're talking about this morning is once you believe it, then you begin to act as if it's so, because we already talked about the fact that faith and feelings are the op- have nothing to do with each other. I cannot measure anything about God by my emotions and by my feelings. And yet that's what most Christians do. We decide whether God's hurt us or not by how we feel. And the other thing is, and that's really why we're talking about this, is therefore we decide whether God loves me and how much He loves me by whether I feel that love or not. And that's the whole purpose of this discussion that we're going through over these weeks, is you cannot determine God's love for you by how you feel, because it's a gift from God received by faith. So faith starts by taking him at his word, and his word says he loved you so much he put his own son's life on that cross for you. That's a fact. And so I choose to believe that because the Bible says so. That's the only grounds. Because I believe that now, we're learning, I now have to begin to act as if that's true. And as I act as if that's true... It releases the power of that what I believe to become real in my life. (laughs) At whatever time of year the hen and the rooster do whatever the hen and the rooster do need to do to produce eggs. And she produces these eggs, and if she just produces them and walks off, what happens? they become somebody's breakfast. But if she sits on them and allows them to incubate, those eggs that have been fertilized will hatch. And the life that was in the potential of that seed that was deposited in her by that rooster will now become a living reality. When the word of God goes into your heart, it is a seed. We've looked at that. That seed gets planted in your heart and as you believe it, it begins to incubate. But when you act on that word as if it's so, whether you feel it or not, what happens is you release it. It's as if that word now hatches and becomes a reality in your life. And what most Christians are doing is they're waiting to see the reality before they act as if it's so. And we saw in Romans chapter 4, in those verses, since it said about Abraham, it says that he believed in order that he might become what was promised. So God promises, you have to believe it in order to become it. And what James is saying here is the other step in that is not only do you have to believe it, then the one of the ways you believe it is you start, if you really believe it, you start acting as if it's so, even though you don't feel it or see it yet. Now, let's go to Genesis 22 because I want to look at the story that James is referring to here. This is a story that, if you don't understand some background, can be just a little confusing and disturbing. Genesis 22. Now, we start, talked about Abraham, and we talked about... Um, but look, Let's start in the first verse. Now, it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. These things that it came to pass after is what we've already talked about. God comes to Abram. His name was still Abram at the time. And God makes a promise to him. It says, through you and your wife Sarah you're going to become the father of many nations. As I've already mentioned this morning, we've talked about before, at that point in time, Abraham was 75, his wife was 65. They were already past childbearing age, and she was barren, she hadn't been able to produce already. And God's talking about a multitude of nations coming out of them. We went back and we saw how they tried to help God out. So Sarah gave Abraham, her servant Hagar, uh, Hagar, and he had relations with her, and they produced a the child, presented that child to God, and says, see, this, through this boy will be the father of many nations. God says, no, 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 no. Your efforts cannot contribute to this at all. The only thing you can do is believe my promise. And we saw that when he was 95 and she was 85, or, excuse me, 99 and she was 89, <clears throat> that they finally came to the place of believing God's promise. We also looked last week and saw that if you read Genesis' account, they didn't get there so smoothly. Abraham laughed at God over the promise once. Sarah laughed at God over the promise once. There's a number of areas where they failed, and yet when you get to the New Testament, God's testimony about him and them is that they didn't waver in unbelief. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. That God sees the end from the beginning, and he treats us based on the end, not how we get there. His record of your walk with him is based on where you end up. That'll preach, <laughs> but not today. <clears throat> and so now this scene comes where now Abraham has this son. God, the result of his trusting God. God's pleased, Abraham's pleased, and the, 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 in the Hebrew, I don't read Hebrew, but I understand in the Hebrew, the, the implication is he's a young man now. He's probably in his 20s. That's what's going on before. Everything's great. He's trusted God. He's believed God. Here's the son, the son of the promise. And it said, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains. I shall tell you. I can't imagine what that must have sounded like to Abram. What must have gone inside of his mind. Now, What's interesting is the reason we don't know what went on inside of his mind is he didn't open his mouth. I'll say that again. The reason we don't know what went on inside of his mind is he didn't open his mouth. I'll say that again. The reason we don't know what went on inside of his mind is because he didn't open his mouth. I can't imagine what's going on inside what came out of his mouth was only what was pleasing to God. What came out of his mouth, we're going to see later, were only words of faith. And by the way, what Abraham knows what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking his son, laying him on a wooden altar, taking a knife, driving that knife through his heart to, to cause the blood to flow, and then burning the altar up. That's what God's telling him to do. Now, the reason I can imagine what must have gone in his mind is Abraham, it's not as if God said to him once, I'm going to give you a son by trusting me. And he's going to be the, you're going to be the father of many nations through him. But God forced him to believe it because when God, Abraham tried by his own efforts, God says, no, 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 we're not doing it that way. It's only this boy is coming by faith in my promise through, Ab- through your, your loins and Sarah's body. That's how I'm going to do it. And now they've done it and the son's there. And now God tells him to do something that looks totally inconsistent with what God had said. You know what most of us would have done? We'd have rebuked him as the devil. Get behind me, Satan. That was the voice of the devil. I know that was the voice of the devil because it doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't fit in with the plan of God that he told me. And of course, Abraham didn't want to do it either. But notice what Abraham does. Verse 3, And Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey. I don't know that I'd have gotten up early in the morning. I might have gotten up and prayed and said, Well, I don't know if this is God. I need to call 14 friends and have them intercede because I may not be God. I don't know whether this is God or not. He knew the voice of God. He took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, from the split wood for the offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. And then on the third day, so for three days he's living with this, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place far off. And Abraham look, look, And Abraham said, and Abraham said to his young men, you stay here with the donkey and the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and later on Isaac, his son... There's a whole symbolism here about God's son carrying his, the, the wood of the offering that he was going to be on. But we can't go into that this morning. And he took the fire in his hand and the knife and the two of them went on together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, "'My father,' he said, "'Here am I, your son.' He said, "'Look, I see the fire, I see the wood.'" But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? It hasn't dawned on him yet. And Abraham said, My son, look at this next word out of it. My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. So the two of them went on together. What's going on here? Abraham has heard from God. Abraham is now living with the fruit of that promise. And now God's testing Abraham. We'll see what that means in a minute. God's testing Abraham by saying, I want what I gave you back. And I want it back by you slaying him as an offering to me. And every word out of Abraham's mouth is the son and I are coming back. God's provided the lamb for the sacrifice. I don't know how this is going to work out. I just know you and I are going back down the mountain somehow. Why? Because God promised me that through this boy, I'm going to be the father of many nations. And even when the circumstances don't look like it's going to happen, now it's not the circumstances, it's what God's telling me to do, look like it's not going to happen. I'm not going to back off the promise that God made to me No matter what God tells me to do, I'm going to obey Him, but His promise is still going to come true. I don't know about what it's doing for you, but this is helping me. (laughs) Verse 9. So they came to the place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood on the altar in order... Bound up Isaac his son. We can talk someday about the faith of Isaac had in his father. Bound up Isaac his son and laid him in the altar upon the wood. And the father oh, that's a wow. That's an Imagine the faith that son had in his father. Because all his father said it's going to be okay. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or Do anything to him. For now I know, now I know, now I know that you fear or reverence me, God, since you've not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes. And there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of his son, and the Abraham called the name of the place, "The Lord will provide," which in Hebrew is Jehovah, uh, Jehovah uh, Jireh, and uh, the Lord will provide. And it is said in that day, in the mountain of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verse fifteen. The angel, of the Lord, said to Abraham a second time out of heaven, he "said By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing, and not withheld your son, your only son." Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall pl- possess the gates of the enemies. And in your seed, in your seed, that's singular, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. We don't have time to go back there. But if you go back and look at Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, you'll see God made those same promises to him back then. But the fullness of these promises God would not release until Abraham had submitted to him and obeyed him to this level. Until Abraham had acted on this promise in trust in God to the point that he would do the very thing that looked like it was going to cause the promise not to come about. Now turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll see the understanding of this. this is in a context where the writer of Hebrews is talking about living by faith and not pulling back because the people to whom this was written were being tempted to go back into the old ways of the law and try to mix Judaism and Christianity together. There's, by the way, there's a move out there to do that now. There's even a move to blend Christianity with with Muslims. There's churches combining the two together. I don't want to go there this morning. And so the writer of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to correct that. And he ends up by saying what I've encouraged you earlier. Don't throw away your confidence. Verse 35 of t- chapter 10 says it has a great, King James says, recompense of reward. Goes on to say, don't throw it away your confidence because God does not take pleasure if we pull back. And then it says, chapter 11 begins to tell us how we are to walk, and that's by faith. So verse 1 says, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So everything in this chapter is an example of that principle of what faith is and how faith operates. And since we're learning we have received this gift of His love by faith, we're going to see in there, if we read through these, those same elements. In fact, let's take a look at some of them because I want to show you that they're also. Let's go in Hebrews 11 to, um, let's look at verse 7. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned about things not seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark. So Noah warned about things not seen. God spoke to him, in other words. The warned about things not seen was God's word. God spoke to him and said, build an ark. That was the promise, the word God had given to to Noah. Noah, because he believed it, that's moved with godly fear, prepared the ark. He acted on what he believed. He went ahead and built the ark, because that's what the Word of God said. And by that, he saved his whole household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. See, when you, when you, when you receive what God promised you by faith and you act on it, there is a blessing that comes with it, which is the release of the fullness of that promise into your life. But it can only come by, first of all, believing the promise and then acting as if the promise is so. Because when you act as if the promise is so, you hatch your faith. And now the blessing can begin of, the, of whatever that promise is can begin to flow through you. So here the promise to Noah was that he, the world would be saved by him. God made a statement to him and commanded Noah to build an ark, gave him all the specifications, said he was going to bring a great flood. No, it had never rained before, if you study the Bible. And now God's saying it's going to rain and flood the earth? He's got a choice to make. Either I believe that promise, or I don't. But if he believed the promise, and waited till he saw the first raindrops, they all would have died but he believed the promise and contrary to everything his senses told him, including his neighbors probably, including his wife, he went ahead and did, acted, as if what God told him was the truth. And the result of his acting on it, which is also called obedience, is that not only was his, his household was saved, but the seed through whom the Savior would come to the world, was also preserved. In other words, your salvation and my salvation was in that ark and could only be released because he acted on the word that he believed. Let's look at another example or so here. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place where he was to receive inheritance. That story is the beginning of the story of Abraham where God speaks to him in where he lived at that point, which is around where a rock is right now. And God called him to go to a place he was going to tell him when he got there. And Abraham believed what God said and then acted on it. That's what he's talking about here. Not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise, as in a foreign country dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of him of the same promise. For he waited for the city uh, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith Sarah, verse 11, also received strength to conceive feet, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. Now it doesn't tell us here how she acted on his belief, but I think we can all figure it out. Some of you will get that when you go home. <laughs> therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born as many of the stars of the sky in the multitude, and rumor was innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Okay, now let's go down to verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, that's what we just read, offered up Isaac, and he who received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, why did he do that? Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him back in a figurative sense. In other words, Abraham's thinking was this. All I know is God's promised me that through this boy... I'm going to be the father of many nations. Now he's telling me to sacrifice his life to me. I don't know how that's going to work out. But that's not my business. How it works out, my business is to trust the promise that God made no matter what I see, no matter what I feel, and even no matter what God tells me that looks to the contrary. What God was testing Abraham was his faith in that original promise. God was testing. Do you trust me now that you've received that promise? Do you trust me more than the boy that I gave you as a result of that promise? Why? Because God's vision was bigger than that boy in Abraham's life. God's vision was that through him, the whole world would be blessed. But Abraham had to trust God's promise and hold steady on that promise even when it looked like God was taking the means away of that promise coming about. I've been through this in my life in various ways. One was at a point when God essentially took the call away from me. See, God, if you have a, if you have a call, if you have, a, we all have a call. If you have a talent or ability, there may well come a point where God asks you to put that down, sacrifice it, give it back to Him, so that He'll know that you know that that's His, not yours. That He'll know that you know that He owns that gift, and you don't. And it's been given to you for the benefit of his using it to bless other people. And we consider and say, I know that, but until you've got to take that gift and play it down on the altar, and take that knife and you're willing to kill that gift, only at that point do you know in your heart whether you're trusting God or not. And what Hebrews 11 tells us is Abraham was confident that if God had to raise him from the dead, that's what he'd do. Because all Abraham knew is God had made clear to him, through this boy, you're going to be the father of many nations. And the vision hadn't come about yet. Abraham had to act on it. Now, how do we bring that over into what we're talking about. How do we bring it over into receiving the love of God and receiving His love for us? How do we bring that over? Well, it starts, as we've talked about before, by taking the promises of God's love for you and simply believing them. But where now we're learning today that believing them is not enough. In order for that to go off in you, you've now got to begin to act as if that love for you really is true. Hebrews chapter 10. And there are many things we could look at to do this. And there's so much in here that we could look at. The Word of God says, let's start in verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with those same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year make those who approach, that's approached the altar of God, perfect or complete. For then they would have not ceased to be offered, for the worshippers, having once been purified, would no longer have a consciousness of sin. So under the Old Testament system, it was designed in such a way that people constantly had this awareness of their sin." because every time they would bring an animal to be sacrificed, it covered their sins of the past but there was always the smell of animals being sacrificed, so there was a constant reminder that there was sin in their lives, and they had to bring in another lamb the next time to sacrifice for the sins that they committed since the last sacrifice that they just made. So it was a constant process of sacrifice, the smell of the sacrifice, because it was intended by God to get in their senses that this was not enough. This didn't take care of sin. This didn't remove the sin. It simply covered it over temporarily. That's the Old Testament system. Then he goes on to say, but that sacrifice is not what God cares about. What he cares about is a son would come and be willing to do his will. Verse, down through verse 8, that's what he says. Verse 10 then says, by that will, the will to sacrifice his own son, we have now been sanctified. That means separated. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, once. For all. So the contrast is, under the Old Testament system, these sacrifices were being made 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, except when the camp was being moved. Constant smell of burning flesh, constant looking for animals to bring in sacrifice. Why? Because it didn't get rid of sin. It simply covered it over so that God could dwell in the middle of their camp. But this goes on to say that under the new covenant God didn't want a sacrifice He sent His Son. And what the blood of bulls and all the blood of bulls and goats could do was wash over the sin and allow God to tolerate us. But the blood of His Son because of His infinite value the blood of His Son was infinitely more powerful it did not cover over it it washed it away and obliterated it so that under the new covenant we're not to walk around conscious all the time of our failures and of our sins and of our falling short that's under the old covenant because they had to continually offer up sacrifices and many of us are still offering up sacrifices to God for our failures I'm sorry, God. Yes, repent. And he says he's faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is a promise that you receive by faith, not by how you feel. And then you act as if that's so. You go on forgiven. How can you come confidently to him and receive his love if you're so conscious of your failures? This man, verse 12, after he offered one sacrifice for sins, that's Jesus, forever sat down at the right hand of God. The priests under the Old Testament, there were no chairs to sit in. Why? Because the work was never done. He's seated because the work's done. Verse 13, from that time on, waiting till his enemies be made his footstool, for by one offering... He has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us after such things as we said before. This is the covenant that I will make with them. Just go down to um, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, as a result of all this promise, this is how we act on it. This is how you act on that promise. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest, that represents the presence of God, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, and having a high priest, that's Him, over the house of God. This is it. Let us draw near with a truer, sincere heart in full assurance of faith, not feelings, not because you feel assured. But it's the assurance that comes by faith in what he's done. By full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil consciousness. That means a consciousness of your own evil. A consciousness of your own failure. A consciousness of your own sin. His blood has cleansed us of that consciousness if we will believe what he's done. Does that mean you can't sin? Of course not. But it will cause you not to want to. We're talking about receiving the fullness of his love for us by faith. And you cannot receive the fullness of this if all you're conscious of is how you're failing. Because I'm not worthy to receive it. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's just pull the covers off. None of us are. <laughs> Romans 3 says that's what qualifies us to receive it by faith, by grace as a gift but we won't enjoy that gift unless we receive it by faith so we receive it because God said that's how he sees you God says he loves you that much stop arguing with him but how could he love don't argue with him he said he does Now, the way you begin to enjoy it is you start acting as if that were actually true. And one of the ways to act as if it's true is when you get up to pray tomorrow morning, you come with boldness. We don't turn there, but if you went to Hebrews 4, it says, Come boldly, come boldly. God's telling you, Come boldly to the throne of grace. In the Old Testament, it was a throne of judgment. To the throne of grace, to receive mercy and help in time of need because the verses before says you have a high priest who can be touched with the feelings of your weaknesses because he was tempted and all ways you were, yet he didn't give in. But he knows what it's like to deal with the temptations that you deal with. That's why he became a high, that's how he became your high priest. Because he can represent you before God, because he understands what you're struggling with. But the one that represents you never failed, so he can represent God to you. Chapter nine, we don't have time this morning to get it. Chapter nine says he's gone as a forerunner into the throne of God to represent you and me and poured his blood out. That blood is what he p- shed to pay for your righteousness so you can come boldly. and we're all hanging around the ice like, I don't think like it's to worthy today. Oh God, you don't know what I've done. He knew what you were doing before he sent Jesus to the cross) But pastor, I'm afraid if I do this, then I'm going to take all this for Rooted and grounded in love. We're talking about receiving the gift of how much He loves you. And you receive it by faith. Just because He said so. And now I start acting as if God loves me that way. I don't feel a thing. In fact, it'll sometimes it will cause your mind to seize up on you. One of the scriptures I gave you in that handout is in John 17. This has this one of the most amazing statements in the Bible. and it's, But it's Jesus' prayer to His Father. So we know it was answered. He says, Father, that they may be one. That's going to take a miracle, isn't it? That they may be one, but He can do it. That they may be one, and they might know that, that that You love them even as You love me. The Bible says... That God loves you as much, if not more, than He loves Jesus. That's what it says. I don't feel like that. When I first read that scripture, my brain seized up. I heard somebody say it. That's how I saw it was in there. I was like, you can't say that. And then I saw it was in there. I said, well, I guess I can say it. But I, I, my brain would seize up. But you meditate on it. You meditate on it. You meditate on it. You meditate on it. And then you begin to act as if that's so. How do I act as if? Do I go around, you know, brag? No, but you come boldly to Him. You come boldly to Him. When you've had a good day, you come boldly to Him. When you've had a rotten day and you fell flat on your face, you come boldly to Him. You come boldly to Him. You come boldly to Him. What did Jesus call His disciples to do in the beginning? He didn't call them to straighten their lives up. He says, come, follow me. That's His call to you. Come, follow me. In the process, he'll straighten you out. But it comes by following him. Not hanging back, straighten yourself out, and then follow him. Just come follow him. So before you go to bed tonight, when you get up in the morning, you're not going to feel like it. But just say, Father, I come to you with confidence and boldness of a full son. I come to your presence this morning the same way Jesus feels coming to you this morning. Not because I feel like it, because I don't. Because your word says so, and I'm acting on your word. And you watch what God will begin to do. Because only as they acted on the word could the fullness of the promise be released in their lives. Let's pray. Father, we just stand in all of you this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Father, we just pray right now that this word that we've heard as a seed will begin to continue to grow and be watered. And Lord, we just commit right now to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Forgive us for how we've hung back and Lord, because we've not been confident that we could come to you when your word says to. We've not taken you at your word and taken you at your promise. But Lord, we want to change that we see your word this morning and we want to respond to you this morning father thank you for the grace thank you that you've been so patient with us now open our eyes of our heart in our heart that you may pour out that we may receive the fullness of this love that you have had for us father we thank you for that in Jesus' name amen